You know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a fraction of what they really have? The streaming service actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only about 6,000 of those are available in the good old US of A. That means you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows. Unless, of course, you use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location, protecting your devices from unwanted snooping and allowing you to control where streaming services and other websites think you're located. There are over 100 different locations to choose from, which means you have access to thousands of new shows and movies no matter where you live. This doesn't just work with Netflix, it works with Disney+, Hulu, Max, a UK streamer called BBC iPlayer, and more. I was on a work trip in the UK during the final season of Game of Thrones, and I tried logging into my HBO account to watch a new episode, but the technology wouldn't let me because of geoblocking. And I wish I had this app at that moment, because I now realize how incredibly easy it is to work around that problem. Here's a more recent example. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is not streaming on Netflix in the US, but I just fired up the episode where Dennis tries to have a peaceful mental health day and technology keeps interrupting his plans. All I had to do was open ExpressVPN, connect to a UK server, refresh Netflix, and the show just popped up. It's super easy. I've also heard good things about that show called Billions, but I've never been a Showtime subscriber, so I've never seen it. But it's actually available right now on Netflix in South Korea, and with ExpressVPN, it took five seconds to switch over and start checking it out. With ExpressVPN, you get high-quality streaming from devices like your phone, laptop, tablet, and TV. And crucially, it protects your privacy and security to keep your information safe from hackers. Stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you all three extra months free when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash slash film. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slash film to get three extra months completely free. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, July 11th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about the new Marvel Studios movie, Thor Love and Thunder. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. All right, Brad, let's get into it. Thor Love and Thunder is in theaters right now. We're going to have a full spoiler conversation. So for the listeners out there, if you've not seen the movie yet, uh pause and, and go watch it. Um, okay, let's get into it, Brad. Uh, general thoughts about this movie. What'd you think about it? Uh, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. Um, I don't think that it is quite as good of a film overall as Thor Ragnarok. Um, I think it maybe gets a little bit too indulgent as far as the humor is concerned, even though it is still a very funny movie. And I think that maybe the movie's biggest problem is that uh, for some reason, Taika Waititi feels like he was maybe a little uh, hesitant to lean full tilt into the emotional side of the story and kind of compensated for it by having more comedy in it. And for me, that undercut how much the emotional beats should have resonated. I wish you would have given them the... the um, the Jane storyline, a little more room to breathe. And I wish that he would have given us a little more to latch onto with some of the other stuff that is meant to be a little more heartfelt and feels like it's, you know, kind of trying to be heartfelt, but doesn't quite stick the landing. Yeah. But overall, I think the movie is still 
very entertaining. Uh, I think Chris Hemsworth is, you know, fantastic in this movie. Really, the entire cast uh, is is great in this movie. Um, I, I really don't understand like people like saying it's the it's one of the worst movies they've ever seen. Like, if, if this is one of the worst movies you've ever seen, you've clearly <laughs> never seen a real bad movie before. Yeah, uh, because this is far from a terrible movie. It's messy, sure. It's got plenty of problems, uh, but it's still a very entertaining movie. Wow, I've not seen people say that it's one of the worst movies they've ever seen. That is um, that is quite the take. I uh, I did not really like this movie, um, which is unfortunate because I I went in really uh, I liked Thor Ragnarok a lot, and I was hoping for a lot because um, Taika's sort of been all over the place. I think there's been a lot of discussion in recent days about him becoming like Lin Manuel Miranda, where he's just like you know uh, at that point of exposure where um, maybe some of the pushback to this movie and him in general is just because he's like everywhere right now. Um, setting all of that stuff aside, I think I have a lot of the same issues that you have that you you already laid out about like the uh, lack of emotionality in this movie that I, you know, it, it really tries for it, especially at the end, which we'll talk about. And I just didn't think that the movie earned those moments um, yeah. in in ways that uh, that maybe it did, or that maybe like uh, Taika did in um, in Ragnarok, for example. So, uh, yeah, and then I think I think where our our big split on this, Brad, is that like you enjoyed the rest of the movie, presumably because you thought it was funny. I'm guessing, right? Like a and and comedy is like so subjective that a lot of the comedy in this movie just didn't work for me. So when that happens, I wasn't really left with much to latch onto you know, all the way through, really, like, I, at least Ragnarok, for me, I, I thought was one of the funniest MCU movies and the jokes, most of them worked really well. Um, and this one, it just felt like the entire thing really, to me felt like this was the first draft uh, screenplay of this, and they just yeah. like, went out and shot it as quickly as possible. Yeah, I do think that in the, in this case, one of the things that makes Ragnarok so much stronger comedically is that the the jokes themselves really feel like tied into the story, and they help uh it like in a way to like advance characters and provide like context and like give you a little extra details uh about the characters and here it feels like there's a lot of jokes just for the sake of jokes and that can be a problem yeah yeah okay so i I wrote out a bunch of bullet points um which if you're listening you can follow along in our show notes if you want to but um i you know brad feel free to jump in and and fill in you know touch on any point that you want to talk about. The first thing that I had written down is Christian Bale as Gore the God Butcher. What did you think about him and his performance and uh, how this character sort of fits into this narrative? Uh, I love Christian Bale as Gore. Uh, this is a, a great performance. It, it rides the line between uh, being villainous and like uh, darkly funny. Uh, I, I'm thinking especially of that scene where he's talking to the kids in the cage and he yeah. like, he's like telling them a story like it's so just like gross and funny and weird. Um, and like just his, his look, you know, really enhances that as well. And honestly, this is one of the first villains in a long time, I think, uh, probably since Killmonger and Black Panther, where we've had, you know, a, a villain who actually does have a little bit of a sympathetic, sympathetic edge to him, where like you understand why he is in the position that he is, why he feels the way he does. And it's hard to, uh, hold that against him because he's was abandoned by the, the God that he worshiped and he lost his daughter and now he wants all gods to pay. Um, and yeah, it's I, I my only wish I think for Gore is that I wish he got more screen time, especially when it comes to facing off and engaging with Thor. I feel like we really didn't get a good uh, confrontation between them. Like I, I really like when when villains engage with heroes and like taunt them and like have have a little monologue with them. And even though we do get a little bit of a monologuing scene when he has. Uh, 
uh, Valkyrie and Thor and uh, Mighty Thor in that like weird uh, shadow realm. Uh, I don't know trap. Like, I guess black and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like there's a little bit of that there, but like I, I wanted more of some, like a direct conflict with with Thor himself. Um, mm-hmm. But but otherwise, uh, yeah, I, I thought Gore the God Butcher was very cool. Yeah, I think he's great on paper, and and like you said, I just I wanted a little bit more of him to to have him fleshed out. And I don't know if that, it sort of goes back to that thing I was talking about of like it sort of feels like a first draft because like the um the, the idea of like a character who is uh who is abandoned by um somebody that he's put his entire faith in, and he uh, basically um decides to lash out and it, you know, it feels like a very relevant character right now, especially with like what's happening politically in the United States. Like this, this feels, I think Killmonger is like the, the, um, the comp, right? Like the, the best uh, comparison of, of what we've seen so far in the MCU. And, and on paper, I love that idea. And I think it actually works pretty well in the movie. I just wish that there was more there because like by the time he has to make this, this final decision, which we'll talk about later on, um, it just, it didn't feel has earned to me. And that, that goes back to that emotionality thing. Like I think there was a, and I don't, you know, it's obviously it's very easy for us to like play Monday morning quarterback on, on a $200 million movie like this and be like, well, this is the way that they could have done it or whatever. Um, but it, I don't know there, I, I walked out of this movie, Brad being like, are these Marvel movies for me anymore? And, and <laughs> I, I think the answer is yes, they can be because I was like, when was the last time that I really loved a Marvel movie? And I actually really liked uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, and then Endgame, I, I loved a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I basically this movie left me in a state of um, of confusion and sort of like, is this really the best that we can do when it comes to this Marvel stuff? And and I sort of understand a lot of the negative reaction to this movie. Um, but I it, it actually forced me to go back and look at a full list of all of the MCU stuff in order and be like, okay, no, I, I actually like this stuff when it when it um, you know has the right heart to it or when things when, when it doesn't feel quite as rushed and scattered. But um, anyway. I think I think that there's there's two like uh, larger problems here too that at play that I think that like are starting to become more apparent. One of them is that Phase Four in general hasn't been as strong as. Um, the the last phase that we got you know i think that uh phase three of the mcu and the end of the infinity saga went out on such a strong note that like we haven't had anything that feels like it's really on par with that and we haven't honestly we haven't really had anything that feels like it's on par with the building of the avengers and leading towards what became the infinity saga you know once thanos appeared at the end of avengers there was this lingering background storyline that fed throughout the entire mcu uh, franchise and mm-hmm. it gave us something to like latch onto. There was like little hints there, like it all felt it was building something. And right now, there's really no clear, you know, uh, I think finish line yet. Um, we haven't really been getting uh, given any hint as to what is the big story for Phase Four. And Feige, Kevin Feige, has teased, you know, that we'll we'll be getting that sooner than later. Um, and maybe we'll see threads that you know are building to that. Uh, when we go back to these other movies, but I just more, more so I think these movies just haven't been as strong by themselves as previous entries were in the MCU. And mainly I think with Dr. Strange and Thor love and thunder, it's because that they haven't really done a good job of like really locking down the script and not playing around and like feeling like they're like really piecing it together in post-production. Like, of course, 
a movie does come together in the editing room. But in this case, like especially with Thor: Love and Thunder, we've we've heard from from Taika and from the actors themselves that there was so much improvisation on set to the point where the characters were able to kind of like lead where the storyline went, and they were figuring out the storyline as they were shooting and and you know did some stuff in reshoots, and it's like. I feel like in this case, like they really needed to to like lock down a better story and yeah. build build around that, as opposed to kind of like making it up as they go along. You know, there's a reason that there are awards for screenwriting, um, and maybe <laughs> maybe they should spend a little more time honing the script before they get in front of a camera. Like, sure, the comedy stuff can be improvised and stuff like that, but I don't think you should be improvising storylines on the fly. Yeah, I want to say Natalie Portman said something about, like, you know, there were entire planets that were um, included in the storyline that were basically, like, improved away because they just chose to go in a, in a different direction and, like, characters and things that that just did not make the final cut. And and it really feels like you can, you can um, see the seams in a movie like this, whereas... You know, somebody like Christopher McQuarrie, who is always my go-to example when it comes to that type of filmmaking, um, you know, in Mission Impossible Fallout, for example, you can't really see the seams. He, he is so um, masterful at being able to take that chaos of a production shoot that is so scattered and so, you know, coming up with it on the fly and actually like um, spinning that uh, nonsense into gold in the final cut where you can't really, you know, hiding the seams basically. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that's just, it's so difficult to do and not everybody can do it. Even great people, you know, uh, Taika Waititi is like a fantastic writer director. I, I love a lot of the stuff that he's made. Um, so it's not like saying that he's like a talented hacker or talentless hacker or anything like that. It's just like you're saying, I think they, you know, they would go uh, the, the, this, this entire um, experiment would, would just be much better served uh, having a lot of the stuff locked down a little bit. And then also like really quickly going back to something you said before, like the idea of seeding, um, you know, hints and Thanos and all that kind of stuff in throughout the earlier versions of the, the MCU. Uh, at the time, I remember rolling my eyes at a lot of that stuff and just sort of being um, impatient with it or sort of like, uh, you know, maybe annoyed with it in certain cases. But um, looking back on it, it's really like a be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Because I think at the time I was like, ah, I wish I think these Marvel movies would be better if they didn't have all this, uh, you know, blatantly obvious connective tissue kind of stuff. But now think it's like, um, you know, taking stock of where we are in phase four, it really feels like, you know, that kind of stuff that I complained about in the past would have gone a long way to giving the overall franchise some serious momentum. Um, so, you know, I, yeah. yeah like and, that's not to say, and that's not to say that there isn't a benefit to having movies that can stand by themselves. Like even like every single movie that is made, even if it's a sequel, should stand on its own as, you know, a story that has a beginning, a middle and an end, even if it does have connective tissue to other franchises, you know, other movies uh, in its own franchise or the larger MCU. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think there is something missing right now as far as like giving giving the overall uh, Marvel Studios machine like something to latch onto, like as far as fans are concerned. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back into it. Um, the movie begins basically with uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy showing up and Thor is hanging out with them and, um, you know, doing this weird thing where he's sort of like... Uh, <laughs> 
you know, the, the uh, he's sort of like MacGruber, the very beginning of MacGruber, like sitting, you know, up on a on a hillside, sort of like almost as a, a monk type of figure and waiting to be uh, summoned to, down to the, the battlefield. Um, and it seems like, you know, this is a, a process that they've gone through a bunch of times, like um, Star-Lord at one point is, is um, mouthing along with the words of Thor's speech, like they, they've clearly fallen into a groove here. And this is like the, uh, the standard pattern of what happens. They go to a different planet. Um, the guardians get in over their heads trying to solve a problem or help somebody thor hangs out on the sidelines and they get gets called into the action and basically just like wipes the floor with everybody and, and sort of saves the day but leaves uh, you know a, a giant uh mass of chaos in his wake um so what did you think about um the guardians and their appearance and that action scene early on because they they show up for basically one scene and then they disappear for the whole rest of the movie and they're never mentioned again yeah you know i honestly wish that like there was an entirely different movie with Thor and the guardians of the galaxy, because I think that would have been something really fun uh, to explore in a larger movie rather than just like having them appear here and send Thor off so that he can go on his own adventure with Jane, because it really felt like at the end of Endgame there was an opportunity to like really have a movie that was like the Asgardians of the galaxy. And maybe that didn't jibe with what James Gunn wanted to accomplish with guardians of the galaxy volume three, since that's supposed to be, you know, the end of the arc for that version of the team. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, you know, it, it felt like a rushed version of what I would have liked to have seen with Thor hanging out with them and going on adventures. Like it, it was almost like it was an episode of TV um, yeah. that, they, that they, gave, they gave us instead. And so as much as I liked the interaction between Thor and the Guardians, it, it just felt like it was a missed opportunity. Um, but, you know, they, they gave each member of the Guardians like their own, uh, funny moment, and then once they hit all the checklists and they had, like, that quick heartfelt, you know, goodbye with uh, Taika's brand of humor in there, then it's like, okay, well, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wish it was more fun. Like, I just... The the comedy moments didn't really land for me, um, especially in this scene and really all throughout the movie, which is uh, a big problem when, you know, the, the movie sort of hinges on your appreciation of those moments. I just didn't think... Like, the idea of, um, of Thor doing, like, a Van Damme split between to uh, whatever those were, hover vehicles or whatever. Um, it just sort of seemed like the movie was way more um, amused by that moment than I was as an audience member. And um, again, comedy is like super subjective. So some of the stuff may have worked wonderfully for a lot of our listeners. Maybe it worked super well for you, Brad. I don't know. Um, it's just tough to, um, you know, when when the emotional through line and the, that sort of core of heart is not uh, as um, well seated all throughout, then then what you're left with is your appreciation of the humor and um, and I've I've uh, I've clicked with Tyka's comedy in the past and it just didn't it didn't work for me in this uh, instance and the the Guardian stuff it just felt like perfunctory it just felt like um, it, it felt like clearing the the table to get back to a Thor story because yeah. we had left with you know we had left Thor with him hanging out with the Guardian so like it would be weird to just pick up this movie without them there at all. So it was just like, what's the fastest way that we can get rid of them? Like the idea of, of uh, Thor destroying that temple, um, you know, like flying through and, and up and out of that building and, um, you know, have, giving this like triumphant uh, smug speech or whatever. And the, the temple cra- uh, collapses behind him in the background. It's like, we've seen that joke like a, a million times, <laughs> you know, there, there's, uh, that's part of what I walked away from it thinking like, really this is this is it kind of thing so um i think it just feels like you know there was a better uh a better version of this out there somewhere so um 
Okay. Well, yeah, I, I think, and also like Bradley Cooper's voice sounded weird to me. I don't know. That That's me. Um, oh, I don't think so. I thought it, I thought it was right. Picking, but um, okay. All right. Well, uh, okay. Jane Foster, um, you mentioned that you, you wish that this storyline had more room to breathe. And I totally agree with you. Um, what did you think about Natalie Portman's return to uh, this franchise? Uh, so Natalie Portman is great. Uh, she's clearly having so much fun in this role. Like you can feel her enthusiasm, like even even just through Jane Foster as a character, like she's so ready to like get into battle. Like you hear her like cheering and being excited to get into it. And I love her like being like a fresh hero and trying to like figure herself out with her catchphrases and stuff like that. Uh, so like they did they did a good job with as far as like crafting the mighty Thor as a character, but like her the storyline, it just feels like so rushed. You know, we haven't spent any time with Jane in a while and to all of a sudden introduce this big heavy storyline and really not give it as much room to breathe uh, really felt like a disservice to what is one of like the best comic arcs in, you know, Thor's recent history. And I think that they, they did their best to kind of provide a background by having, you know, Korg backtrack and tell, you know, how they broke up and what their relationship was like and everything. Uh, And it was fine. But it's just that that storyline has such emotional heft to it. And it just didn't feel like it was like reached the the emotional depths that it could have. Yeah. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I, I actually want to, uh, whenever possible, call out moments that I think did work really well. And the, the flashbacks to uh, Jane and Thor's relationship, I thought actually were some of the better parts in the movie, even though they're really short, just like the um, sort of montage nature of it, like yeah. giving us just little snapshots, little glimpses of how they uh, interacted and then sort of how their relationship um, you know, fell apart over time. Uh, I thought that was all like really well done. Um, the, the very beginning of Jane's character, like when, or, you know, uh, Jane's uh, return in this movie, where when we see her getting um, chemo, right? And she's talking to that kid who's reading, he's like a teenage kid who's reading like a, one of her books about whatever, wormholes or something. And then she does this whole thing where she folds up a piece of paper and stabs a pencil through it because she says that like Interstellar explained this concept really well. And uh, she's explaining this, you know, string theory or whatever it is to this kid. Um, I I was like, okay, this is definitely going to come back in this movie in some way. And it just never does. And it sort of feels like the movie takes like a a two minute detour just to make a joke about how other movies uh, explain time travel and wormholes. And uh, I I was just, it struck me as like, was there a version of this movie that, um, you know, you mentioned finding the film or something? Yeah. And in in, in the edit where maybe a whole subplot about that got cut out and it just sort of felt like that thing was like a vestige of a different version of this movie that was somehow left in this final version, but it didn't really make any sense in there. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think if if anything, like I think the reason that maybe it still works, even with, with, if that were the case is that it does serve as like a way of getting you back into Jane Foster's life and reminding you like what kind of a character she is and like making her more like relatable, even though she is supposed to be like this genius scientist, it, it, it humanizes her. Like it, it gives yeah. her, gives her characteristics that allow you to like easily latch back onto that character since we haven't seen her since Thor, the dark world. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I, I don't know if I fully buy it, but I, I partially buy it. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, let's see. Um, Russell Crowe as Zeus. Uh, I gotta say, Brad, real quick, I, I'm just going to cut you off and, and tell you what I thought about this first. I, uh, I was like, what in God's name is Russell Crowe doing with this accent? And, uh, I, I read in an interview today that he shot every line 
twice uh one with this greek accent that he was doing and one with like a um like a british accent like Lawrence olivier in clash of the titans or something because taika was not sure which version he wanted to use um and uh i mean i don't know if he made the right call here because not only like the entirety of this zeus character but just like the specific choice to to deliver all the lines in that way i was like Wow, I am uh, I am not gelling with this at all. But what did you think about? Russell oh Crow? man, dude, I loved Russell Crowe in this movie. Like, I love seeing actors of his caliber do roles like this. Like it, um, it kind of reminded me of like Tom Cruise uh, in, in Tropic Thunder. You know, I, I, it's just it's it's so against everything you usually see someone like Russell Crowe do. And so I, I just yeah, I, I honestly thought he was like a scene stealer. It was so funny. Like especially when he walks down off the platform and he like holds his yes. his wardrobe like a little skirt. Yeah. And like just just making Zeus like this complete buffoon was just like such a fun turn and having an actor like Russell Crowe do it, I just I thought it was hilarious. I think the thing for me is that Russell Crowe to me is not the type, you know, if this was like Daniel Day Lewis or something, um doing the exact same performance, I think that is what um is what the movie was kind of going for but russell crowe has actually done stuff like this before like you know he was in the nice guys for example like he he's been but the the nice guys isn't like that same level of silly though like he's it's a funny movie and he's funny in it but he's playing it straight and and so and i think that this there there's more of an awareness of like he's putting on a comedic performance and i don't think he's ever really done a straight up comedic performance like this before. Yeah. Um, I'm racking my brain and I can't come up with one right now, but, uh, and, and real quick, I guess I did not write this down, but like, I just wanted to say as a sidebar, uh, I really loved like the, uh, Matt Damon and the Melissa McCarthy and all of that, like the, um, the actors, uh, Oh Yeah redoing the um the events of the previous movie and all that we've seen this in thor ragnarok already um so it's it's not necessarily a fresh joke but i think it worked really well especially that bit uh where matt damon is talking with um i forget what the other hemsworth luke hemsworth yes luke hemsworth uh about like the um you know they're just like talking about uh you know is this something that that we should that we can turn into a play like the people need to see this immediately and they're like uh, already like working i didn't hear no he's like yeah neither did i he's like night we open on ask yeah i thought that stuff was uh was really well done because it was just like you know a snippet of stuff it it didn't really uh out outstay its welcome or whatever but um i wanted to give a, a quick shout out to that yeah the the zeus thing man i don't know like that whole what was it called on omnipotent city i think um that just it felt like a missed opportunity to me it's it felt like the uh production design and all of that you know this this huge place this essentially planet of gods is such a cool concept and you see like a few little um i guess like creative uh character designs and that guy who's just like a head on top of a pair of two feet and like some of the giant creatures that are sort of sitting in this uh, gladiatorial looking arena kind of area. Um, but I just felt like, I don't know. I, I wanted more from that scene. Um, and, and the Russell Crowe thing just really threw me in. A, in a uh, you know what movie, this uh, movie that Thor Love and Thunder feels a lot like for, I guess you, for better or for worse, c- c- depending on where you stand on it uh, hmm. is the Lego movie. Huh? That's interesting. Uh, I'm like, like like pretty much the exact way the story unfolds because it it starts off with the the villain making himself known. Um, It's uh, and then you have Emmett who is like hanging out with like who he thinks are his buddies, but they're not really. And then he meets Wildstyle, and then 
goes off on this whole separate adventure. And even like the ending, the ending of the Lego movie takes us into like a completely different world like this one does. And like there's I think there's a lot of similarities there. Huh. So is uh is Gore the God Butcher president business in this he, or is, he or is, is Zeus he, president? He is. He is, yes. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, I'll have to think more about that, <laughs> those connections in the coming days. Um, okay, let's move on to our next item here, which is uh, the kids um, in this movie. Like, uh, There's a lot of focus on them being trapped and sort of uh, kidnapped and taken to the, the um, shadow realm, and uh, especially that moment at the end where Thor imbues him with uh, the power of Thor, and they all sort of use their um, their newfound powers to, to have that big fight sequence. Uh, what did you make of these kids and and the idea of um, I think his name is I want to say it's Astrid, but he he goes by Axel because of Axel Rose, and this is uh, Heimdall's son, who is sort of like the de facto leader of these kids. What did you make of of all of that? Yeah, I thought the kids were were an interesting touch. Um, it it kind of had like a an eighties vibe to it, where like there were these big concept movies that gave a lot of like power uh, to kids to like fight their fight their battle and like not just be helpless victims, you know, kidnapped by the bad guys. Uh, and it was there was some, you know, just great, hilarious, wild visuals, especially uh, the the young girl, um, like just blasting away with that stuffed rabbit. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just there was a lot of really cool, cool moments from from that. And uh, I was surprised and interested by the the presence of um, what what is basically, you know, a, a trans storyline by having uh, Astrid be Axel and that just how that character was used because they didn't push it as like this like bold trans thing it's just kind of something that happens you know and it's like a quick conversation um, and it was it was just like a nice touch of diversity that didn't feel like it was necessarily shoehorned in there you know yeah yeah definitely um, to me the uh, the ending battle scene with these kids I was like really on board with it and then I just thought it kind of went you know one or two beats a little bit too long to it reminded me a lot of how i felt about the um the uh musical notes fight sequence in dr strange in the multiverse of madness which i know that i have like the unpopular opinion of thinking like oh that started out really great and it just sort of like uh, out outstayed its welcome just a Ooh, little bit ben, I, know that, I know everybody loves that sequence but um i just thought that, that yeah it stuck around a little bit too long and this this um you know there's like one too many shots of like these kids uh, using their powers and you know spinning around with this you know shooting lasers out of the rabbit's eyes and all that kind of stuff. I just I, I thought uh, a, a slightly lighter touch would have gone a long way there. But um, I guess this is a, a good time to talk about the the overall look of the movie, Brad. Like there were you know there's been a lot of talk a lot of talk about how this was one of the first, if not the first, um, Marvel Studios movie to use the uh, the volume, the, the stagecraft technology that's used in uh, the Mandalorian and all that. And um, I think there are several moments in this movie that just look straight up terrible, <laughs> like uh, really god awful, um, you know, backgrounds, and uh, to the point where you know it, it's it. There, are, I would say that it's like the bad moments in this movie are some of the worst looking moments in the MCU when it comes to compositing and and things like that. There, there's several screenshots that I've seen on on Twitter, you know, people trying to dunk on the movie or whatever, and I'm like. I don't really love the whole attitude of of uh, of what's behind these tweets, but I cannot deny that like the imagery in here just does not look good, and and it just feels rushed, like almost everything else in this movie. Yeah. Um, that you know there are moments uh, like that. They go to that uh, the shadow realm, um, that that planet where everything turns black and white, and um, you know th- there are moments that like should be visually stunning and like you know, um, super memorable. And they just kind of feel 
flat and uninteresting. And for a movie that is called Thor Love and Thunder and is supposed to be this sort of like, you know, electric hair metal 80s style kind of thing. Like I appreciated that the the costumes are super colorful and, um, you know, it sort of reminded me a little bit of a Guardians movie in that regard. But there's yeah. just a lot of um, a lot of missed opportunities here for the the visual aesthetic of the movie, like all the way through. What did you what did you think about that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I do think that the, there's there's a lesson to be learned here that using the stagecraft technology is not a substitute for you know, really good visual effects in some cases, like it, it takes some finesse to really like use that tool to your advantage. And like the, the, it clearly needed more time for them to be able to make it work as good as it should when uh, it's on the Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Um, I do love the vibrant color scheme here, especially because of how it contrasts uh, with the black and white stuff. But I did, I agree with you in the fact that like, especially the sequence where Gore traps uh, Thor and Valkyrie and, and mighty Thor that like I feel like there was an opportunity there to really have some like truly metal shadow imagery, and it just yeah. felt it just felt like they were, they like you know put like a, a black and white tent together or something, and they're like, right. oh, yeah, we'll just shoot these sh- the shots here, You're like whatever. Um, it was yeah, it was a very perplexing sequence in in that way, especially you know just the sheer logistics of it. I was like, what's what's going on here, and and why? Um, but but yeah, I think there are some really cool visuals here. Otherwise, and yeah, the visual effects that's you know that's frustrating. That that's been something that Marvel I think has been criticized a lot more for lately, mostly because of it feels like there are even more visual effects in these movies than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, funnily enough, there there's a there's a Reddit stream uh, or thread rather that's um, that kind of got lit up recently where I guess someone was posting about uh, like being an aspiring VFX artist and wanting to work for Marvel. And a stream of uh, visual effects artists who have and are working for Marvel basically like lit them up saying, nope, this is terrible. Like the, yeah. the expectations as far as like timetables and how much time they have spent working and how much stuff has changed at the last minute and what they're expected to do in such short amounts of time that like apparently it's a nightmare. Um, yeah. And that's understandable, especially when you consider on this movie, you know, if there were entire sequences that were cut and entire planets and, and scenes, then like all that work is for naught. And it's like, well, what are we doing here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is this has been a problem for at least the last 10 plus years in in Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking. Like I remember I, I did an interview with um, a lot of the people at uh, Digital Domain, like the, the visual effects a uh, house that worked on um, uh, Avengers Infinity War. And I like asked them specifically, like, what do you think about this idea of, um, you know, this problem in the industry right now of like basically uh, these third party visual effects houses are are having to like um, lobby and pitch to get the job to work on these Marvel movies. But because there are so many out there and because, uh, you know, these some places will work for pennies basically it's it's like driving the uh costs down and like they are crunched for time and it's just like there's there's all sorts of like terrible issues with um you know people having to work 24 7 and and all of that in order to sort of like meet release dates and get stuff out at the last possible second and and it really like you know in certain instances you're able to sort of um paper over that stuff and and hide it in creative ways and this movie i felt like uh, they just didn't have enough time to, um, to you know, if you take another couple passes at some of these uh, shots or sequences, maybe that stuff wouldn't have been as noticeable. But um, yeah, uh, I think I guess you could say the same thing about the script, too. So, um, OK, let's talk about uh, Gore's final decision, Brad. The, the um, you know, they go into this like eternity realm and there's this uh, 
like outline of uh, some sort of, um, I don't know what you, what you would call that. Uh, is it like a, a God, an eternal, some sort of God creature who like seems to have stars within him where they're like in this, um, this like uh, realm where it's like sky is all around them and there's a little bit of water at their feet. This is the part, by the way, that was shot in the Best Buy parking lot. Taika Waititi too mentioned in an interview i think with insider.com about um there, there was like a tweet that, that went viral recently about like oh some of uh, thor love and thunder's um big scenes were shot in a best buy parking lot and that this is that part of the movie um what, what did you think about uh gore's final decision how basically thor and uh mighty thor essentially end up talking him into not killing all of the gods but instead um bringing his daughter back to life and like passing her on to to thor in this like adoption ceremony what did you think about this <laughs> your tone of voice uh i think says, says says it all um and yeah this this for me was one of the weirdest things in the movie and something that feels entirely unearned and unreasonable based on what we just saw happen and this is part of the reason why i wish thor and gore had more interaction because this feels like it comes out of nowhere like gore has no real reason to listen to thor except for thinking that oh wow it would be great if i could give my daughter the life that i wanted to even if it means me not being here and it's i I do like the overall message of like you know it's it goes back to star wars the last jedi it's you know um protecting who we love not fighting what we hate or whatever Mm -hmm. the the Mm -hmm. line is and i i like that here but i i think the other problem with it that really feels um like it wasn't really molded or like teased throughout the movie to, to actually feel like it had any real resonance as an emotional ending is that we only get a couple bits of like Thor seemingly briefly pondering what it might be like to have a family with Jane and having a kid of his own. And I feel like they really needed to hit that home a bit more. The idea of Thor wanting to be a father and having a kid of his own um, for this to be something that, that made sense because as, as adorable as the ending is to see Gore's daughter with Thor as his adoptive daughter, mm-hmm. it, it feels completely unearned. Uh, it, yeah. it makes zero sense based on how the story played out uh, in the movie. So as much as I want to, to, to like it and I, and I do still, you know, like how it unfolds to, to some extent, it just feels like it needed a little bit more time to cook. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I fully agree with that. I think, um, you know, like the idea of the, the movie ending with Thor and love, like, first of all, I, I only realized that Gore's daughter was named love uh, after I got home and it was like, you know, uh, editing articles this morning about this movie. I was like, wait a second. What? Like, I completely missed that. Did you get that? That her her actual name is love? <laughs> I wasn't sure if like her actual name was love, but like it felt like that was like the nickname they had been given as a pair. Okay, so yeah, I don't know. I was like reading the Wikipedia summary and it refers to her as love all the way throughout. And, you know, maybe Gore says something about like, oh, you know, come come with me, love. Like, let me protect you or whatever. But I just thought it was sort of like a way that- That British you know, people like a, say, come on, love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a nickname for a loved one or something. Uh, not actually her name, but um, I was I was kind of blown away by that. So I, don't, I wonder how many of our listeners picked up on that because I definitely I also, did not. I also wonder if her name actually is love. Like, is that in the credits? Because I, for, for me, I still think that it's just like, because like Thor's name isn't Thunder. So right. like, so I feel, I feel like if anything, Love and Thunder is maybe just like, you know, like their call signs, like if they were in Top Gun. <laughs> 
Okay, well, I guess the jury's still out on that. So yeah, if you know the answer, please write in and, and let us know, uh, peter at slashfilm.com, because I, I would love an answer to this mystery. Um, okay, so let's get into the, the post-credit scene, um, or two of them, actually. Uh, before I do that, Brad, I want to bring out, um, or bring up some, I want to bring out Kevin Feige, he's here, no. I want to bring up uh, something that, um, that I noticed in this movie, and I actually had to do a count to make sure I was right about this. And uh, reaching this number really had me shaking my head. So there are several fake out death scenes in this movie. Uh, and, and several is actually five in this case, Brad. I don't know if you realized if you clocked it at the time, but there are five instances in this movie where a character seemingly dies and then uh, does not. So there's Gore's daughter in the very beginning. She does technically die and then she's resurrected at the end. Uh, there's Korg who is thunderbolted um, by Zeus, but ends up surviving. Mm-hmm. There is Valkyrie, who is stabbed in the back by Gore on that black and white uh, Shadow Realm planet. And it seems like a very dramatic moment where we're about to lose Valkyrie, who is like almost a nothing character in this movie, by the way. She like barely has anything to do at all. Um, and then she survives. And then Jane, who dies, but then technically lives on in a, in a manner that we'll talk to in just a second. And then Zeus, who is thunderbolted through the chest, but survives in a manner that we'll talk about in just a second. So that's five times you, that you go to the fake out death uh, trope. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, like, can you not come up with something else for this? It was, it was uh, maybe representative of like that sort of improv um, uh, way that this movie was handled. It just sort of yeah. felt like um, they yeah, really rise of Skywalker this. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Chewbacca, R.I.P. or not, um, and, and and Ray and Ben, R.I.P. and then yeah. and then not, and and uh, then again. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought it was kind of ridiculous. But uh, the post credit scenes. What did you think about? Um, I think the first one is. Uh, oh, but, realize... well, before, before we oh, get yes. to that, one thing I do want to mention real quick because, like, I, I I will say like the emotional beats that that are present that did work they did let linger. Um, one of them definitely is in. Uh, that whatever that plane of existence is uh, where they, they reach eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that the scene between Thor and Jane is great. Like Chris Hemsworth's performance in this movie really, really, I think it makes it better than maybe it otherwise would have. And, and same with Natalie Portman and Christian Bale too, uh, because one of the moments I think really did work best as far as like Thor and Jane's relationship, no matter how brief it was, was uh, that scene when they're in the hospital and, you know, he tells Jane, it's like, you can't keep using the hammer, you know, it's, it's going to kill you. Yeah. Um, and she's, you know, she's like, uh, you know, why does it, why does it matter now all of a sudden? And like the way Chris Hemsworth says, because I love you, man, like, it's like the tone of his voice and just like the look on his face. It was, it, it reminded me of, um, there's, there's a great moment in Dr. Strange that is, feels like it's equally not necessarily earned because we haven't spent enough time with these characters and like their romance. But when Benedict Cumberbatch uh, tells Rachel McAdams, I love you in every universe, I was like, mm-hmm. fuck, that's a great line. But you did not earn it by any means. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so like there, there are little st- there's a little stuff in here that I just I wish it was a part of something bigger that 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 worked a little bit better. Yeah, that's a great call out. I, I also connected with that moment and really wished that there was more around it to to sort of justify it or, or build it up because I think um, I think you're absolutely right. The, these actors like definitely are doing the best they can with what they have. And it just sort of, um, yeah, the, the full through line is not quite there um, to sort of land in, in the, the emotional way that we want it. So, um, oh, one, one other thing, I guess, before we get into the post credits, uh, when at the very end of the movie, when the kids are returned to new Asgard, and they're being trained by uh, Valkyrie. Um, 
there's this moment where uh, Axel sort of gets the spotlight. I don't remember exactly what happened. I, we're recording this on Monday. I saw the movie on Thursday night, so I don't remember the specifics at this point. But um, there was just, you know, he the, the camera lingers on him. There's like a, maybe a, uh, an exchange between him and Valkyrie where I was just like, man, they are really going hard on this kid. And it just made me feel, again, like they're doing a lot to set up this uh, this new Avengers concept. Like we've talked about this in the past about like all of the young characters who have been seated throughout the past um, several movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Did you sort of, did your like uh, your spidey sense go off in that moment of like, oh, this is definitely laying groundwork for this character to come back in a, you know, a, a team up kind of thing um, in, in the, the coming years? So I didn't pick it up as a thing of like making him part of the Young Avengers crew, even though that would probably make some semblance of, of sense. I took it as more of like, oh, we now Asgard has, a replacement for Heimdall because not only is he being trained to fight, but like he can, uh, he has Heimdall's abilities to like uh, call upon the Bifrost and like teleport people in and out of wherever they need to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, so I feel like if that was just like a Heimdall may be gone, but his son is here. And now, you know, they, we have, you know, the people, uh, someone else other than, you know, Thor, uh, you know, has this ability. Yeah. And, and the movie ends basically with a, a, a text card that says Thor will return or something like that. So we know that Thor is coming back in, in some capacity. Okay. So the, the post credit scene, I think the first one is um, Zeus, uh, who somehow survived the lightning bolt through the chest. Uh, he is surrounded by his like whatever concubines or whatever they are. And um, he uh, basically like um, issues a, a ruling to his son, Hercules, to like go and hunt down Thor and get revenge, basically. Right. Like, that's the that's the gist. Uh, and Brett Goldstein from who plays Roy Kent in uh, Ted Lasso is uh, playing um, Hercules. So what did you think about this, Brett? Uh, very fun, surprising cameo, uh, had, had no idea this was happening whatsoever, uh, when it happened, which was great because I think that it leaked a little bit before the movie came out, uh, and I was successfully avoided it. Um, so very fun. Uh, I'm very curious as to what the, what this means, you know, it, uh, would be digging into a whole different area for the character. I don't know if it's like he's meant to be just like a, an ensemble piece, uh, popping up in MCU movies, if he's supposed to get his own movie his own show uh but at the very least very intriguing to bring this character into play um would be a lot of fun to see him as a villain who goes up against chris hemsworth as thor yeah. um but yeah the casting of brett goldstein in this role it, uh, just because i love him so much it's I, I'm, I'm very excited about that prospect yeah i i was uh i was intrigued i like his character design his costume design and all that and i just i i was I, you know as much as i like did not really love this movie uh, almost at all i i did walk away thinking like oh man this could be a really fun opportunity to see those two characters going to head to uh, going head to head so um we'll see about that and then the last uh, i guess the post credits sequence is jane um walking through I, I don't know some portal or something and she ends up in valhalla and she meets um heimdall there and he says like basically like thanks for for looking after my son uh welcome to valhalla and she i guess uh, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what we're supposed to take from this, Brad, because it seems weird that they would include this and then just never return to this again. So do you think this is, what, what do you think exactly that this is a setup for? You know, I, I've heard some people, some friends of mine and some people online talk about how like that this is a setup for Valhalla to have a bigger place in the future of the, the MCU. But for me, 
like I feel like if they did do this, it would be like one of the worst ideas that they've had because like all of a sudden, if Valhalla is this place that's just another plane of existence and these characters essentially live on there, then they're not really dead. And that 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 really undercuts their existence in previous movies. And so in a in a in a movie universe where no one's dead until they're really dead, this makes that problem way worse. And so yeah. I I hope and like my my initial interpretation of it is that no, this is just a nice send off for Jane establishing that even though she was human and she was imbued with the power of Thor and was able to wield Mjolnir, she was still accepted as a god and ascended into Valhalla with all the other gods who have died. And and it gave us one more moment with Heimdall as well. So I hope that that's it. Cause that's what I want it to be because I, I think anything else would be ill-advised. Yeah. It sort of seems like, I mean, they, they go out of their way to hammer this home throughout the movie that like you have to die in battle on the battlefield to, in order to go to Valhalla. And I thought it was a little weird because I don't think Jane died on the battlefield she sort of died in that like eternity realm with the with the like water and right near gore as he's making that decision and everything so um but, i thought but i don't I think know that, if that's the semantics I, or what yeah because i think i think that her death what was a result of like that battle though like i mean so like even though they went through you know to eternity like she essentially like you know did die on the battlefield and and like what about Sif earlier in the movie? Like you know, her she sustained injuries on the battlefield, but Thor comes to her and, ba- and basically is like, mm, "Sorry, like you you have to die during the battle for you to show up and help." Right, right, yeah. She's like really pissed about that and sort of like horrified. Like, what is the time? You know, what are the rules here exactly? Like, are we talking like five minutes after uh, the last person dies, or like? as people are dragging their loved ones off the battlefield, like if you expire them, like, are you good? I don't know. It, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's like a whole thing you could get into, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I agree with you in that it like removes the, uh, a lot of the emotional uh, stakes from these characters dying in these movies, but like maybe the fact that it's Valhalla specifically and not just a, an afterlife more generally um, means that, you know, characters like Heimdall and, uh, and Jane, who died, quote unquote, in battle or like, you know, in in the a warrior's way or whatever, um, maybe it's a little bit more limited than just like, oh, anybody who dies in the MCU could end up at this place. Um, and I was thinking about like, you know, on the on the drive home, like uh, Greek and Roman mythology, there, there's also and so I don't know much about North, uh, Norse mythology, but I um, minored in school in Greek and Roman stuff. And, and there are a million stories about characters going into the underworld and trying to retrieve loved ones or um, exploring that realm or whatever and coming back. So, you know, maybe there's like a mythological um, uh, precedent for Thor to travel into Valhalla in order to uh, yank Jane back out into the world of the living or something. And that could be potentially what the next movie is about. But yeah, it would definitely undercut the the sacrifice that she made and like the um yeah that the whatever the small amount of emotionality that this film had um it would sort of uh yeah take that away so uh, what do you think about that anything uh yeah i mean just just pretty much what i said i feel like the only way you may, maybe you could make it work is if it was like a temporary thing um you know because like doing something like uh you know bringing back han in the fast and furious franchise despite you know apparently being dead uh, was a was a big hit and so like sure at some point maybe in like 
uh, I don't know, five years, like bringing back Jane in, in some capacity for like, in you know, in an onward kind of way, like, nope, you mm-hmm. only get, you get one day, um, then maybe that would be cool. But like, I just hope it's not a thing where like, nope, these characters are, are all back for good. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I think we're pretty much at the end of our chat here, Brad. Do you have any other moments that stick out to you that we did not touch on here? I'm trying to think if there were any other, like any jokes or anything that really worked for me. Um, I, I was not a big fan of the goats. I thought they were Oh, they the really goats were like, so funny. The screams were always funny. <laughs> I mean, it just, I thought they leaned really hard. If they, if they would have done that once or twice or something, I would have thought it was really funny. But also that was from like, what, 2012 or something? <laughs> that like Taylor Swift uh, goat meme. That was like a long time ago. And for them to do that now, it just sort of feels I mean, it's a not little as, stale, but I don't know. I'm not necessarily sure that that was inspired by Taylor Swift necessarily. Cause like, I feel I like it was, they, I, I read an, uh, oh, really? Like a, where like yeah the sound people were doing like a sort of a test thing for him or some of the visual effects people and they they found that and taika like was somehow unaware of that meme like that that Weird. version of uh i knew you were trouble with the goat scream yeah. in there uh he had like never seen that before and just thought it was hilarious and like yeah it was really funny like 10 years ago or whatever but uh anyway i, I just thought they like leaned on that a little bit too much but um gotcha. i was trying to come up with something positive damn it what uh do you have any positive things that you wanted to uh, to end on here positive things let's see um gosh I, oh man uh one of the best recurring bits in this movie uh is having stormbreaker be a character and slowly creep yes. in the frame yes i'm so glad you mentioned that that is that is really the thing that worked super well is like the idea of this three-way bizarre triangle between thor and mjolnir and stormbreaker and like um, I think the best visual jokes in this movie are when a character, yeah, slowly moves into frame. Uh, whether it's Stormbreaker itself, the this uh, this axe that slides into frame, or yeah. the the one moment in the Guardians interactions that I think is in the trailers. Um, that I I think even despite having seen it in the trailer, made me laugh in the movie theater was uh. <laughs> like uh peter quill talking about like you know his family or whatever like looking lovingly and longingly love, yeah. at, the, at the the guardians and then thor you know his face sliding into frame um yeah the the uh aesthetic of that um and just like the the idea of uh, stormbreaker as this sort of like jealous lover almost of like yeah. uh of what's going on with thor and and uh and the way he like, talks to to mjolnir in that one scene too where she's sitting at the table and it's like oh you moved on pretty quickly huh yeah yeah <laughs> just uh, chris hemsworth like, I'm not sure if there's somebody more supremely frustrating because they they are so talented in a variety of ways, so damn handsome. And I mean, like <laughs> that shot when when Zeus flicks off his clothes, dear God, the yeah. man is an action <laughs> figure. It is. It's insane. Yeah. 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 Uh... Yes, definitely. Um, all right. Well, yes, uh, a naked Chris Hemsworth. I think that's a good way to go out uh, in this conversation. So, um, yeah, you can find a lot more about Thor Love and Thunder at SlashFilm.com. We have a review. We have a spoiler review. We have a ton of articles up about the site right now. If you have any thoughts, that any questions, lingering questions that you have about the movie, I'm sure we've answered, answered it uh, in an article at SlashFilm. So I encourage you to go there and check all of that stuff out. Uh, I'm going to link to a couple of those things in the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, question, comments, concerns, and uh, mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. 
Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.